me this morning to John chapter 1, Gospel of John chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children, excuse me, become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. In his book, Not by Chance, the author Leighton Talbert lists several ways in which God prepared the world for the incarnation of Christ, his coming in the flesh, and he draws out ways in which politically, commercially, linguistically, even the language is spoken during that time, and even philosophically, the ways in which God prepared the world for the incarnation in the fullness of time. The apostle says, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. God had a purpose, he had a timing, particularly that thought of philosophical preparation he gives attention to, and he cites a progression of thought within Greek writers beginning in the 6th century and going down through about the 3rd, 2nd century, where there was a focus upon the logos, or the word as it's translated in uh, our translation here, is the word. So when it says in the beginning was the word, in Greek, that's the word logos. And Greek writers were writing about the logos. They were talking about the logos, and in different ways, they were communicating about the influence of the Logos within the world. More specifically, a writer, author named Philo, who was a Jew in Alexandria, who was born just a couple of decades before the birth of Christ. He was influenced by Greek philosophy, and he also read the Old Testament, uh, a translation of the Old Testament in Greek, the Septuagint. And he also talked about the Logos. So he had read what the Greeks had written, but he also read what the Scriptures talk about in the Old Testament. Of course, he didn't have any New Testament writings. He only had the Old Testament. And there are times in the Old Testament where the word in the Greek translation is Logos. So by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That would be the Logos. By the Logos, the heavens were made in the Greek translation. So this unbelieving Jew named Philo is talking about the Logos. And Talbert, as he kind of summarizes what Philo 
believed, he says, quote, he viewed the Logos as an intermediary between God and the world, and even described it, that is the Logos, as God's firstborn son, an ambassador, an advocate, a high priest. Even though he apparently had no concept that the coming Messiah would be none other than God in human flesh, and so, certainly no inkling that this word, capital W, would in fact appear in his own lifetime. And that book is a book about providence, and that's one of the points that he's making. Not by chance learning to trust a sovereign God, it's a theology of providence, but he says, in short, God was providentially at work plowing the soil of the philosophical musings of men who did not know him in order to set the stage for the presentation of his son as the very expression and communication, the word of God himself. So that's going on out there in, you might say, the land of philosophy, not entirely unrooted in terms of what Philo said in the word of God. And whether it was Psalm 33 or other passages in the Old Testament, he apparently attached his musings to some of the scriptures. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the Old Testament, there are times when the word of the Lord is personal. And we're not going to turn to all the passages, but I just ask you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 1 for a moment. Isaiah, Jeremiah, so we can find Isaiah right next to that, Jeremiah. And look at verse 4 after Jeremiah is introduced in terms of the timing of his ministry. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And notice this in verse 9, it says, Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I've appointed you this day over the nations to, uh, and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And it's particularly verse 9 where we understand that there is some kind of interaction between Jeremiah and we would say the Lord, but how is the Lord introduced in this passage? Back in verse 4. It's the word of the Lord. Verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me saying. Verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Now, we tend to think in terms of an abstract communication. By that, I mean a message from the Lord that comes to the prophet. But I would ask you, how does that happen? The word of the Lord comes to someone, how do they receive it? Well, sometimes we know they received it just in their mind, in a vision. Sometimes we know they received it in a dream, like Jacob and the latter. But other times there is a personal interaction between the prophet and the Lord, or the prophet and the word of the Lord. Now, we could go back, and I'm not going to ask you to do this, but I just give you two other passages where the same kind of thing happens, and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 3, when God calls Samuel, that the word of the Lord came to Samuel and called him. And in Genesis 15, when the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham, it's the word of the Lord that comes to Abraham, and that at a certain point in that context, he takes him outside. And I believe, along with other expressions that describe the second person of the Trinity, the Old Testament, there are times, it's not every time, 
But there are times when the word takes on a personal nature as far as how the biblical writer explains it. If you turn back to John chapter 1, there has been a lot written about the subject of the Logos, and oftentimes those who are writing about the Logos within Greek philosophy and also observe what John did, they might attribute what John says to his borrowing from Greek philosophy and bringing it into the writing of his gospel. And so what John is doing, in a sense, in their mind, is he's just borrowing from the culture, borrowing from some thought that already had a certain meaning, and he's bringing it into his own thinking about Christ. Now, I would say, based on Jeremiah 1, 1 Samuel 3, and Genesis 15, that there actually is a biblical foundation for believing that what John is saying here is rooted in the Word of God. And philosophers aside, and it's fine for them to think and muse on that, but I'm just saying that when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he's talking about a person of the Trinity who was with God in creation. And of course, as he gives the prologue to the gospel here, he's drawing attention to the pre-existence the eternality, the deity of Jesus Christ, who he calls here, and we see it in verse 14, the Word. When he says in verse 14, the Word became flesh, some of the significance of that statement has to do with what was true before. And that's one of the glories of the Christmas story. It's not so much just the events of Luke chapter 2 or Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 1 and 2. It's what came before that. And of course, what came before that had to do with all the prophecies that were made. And yes, they were fulfilled. And that makes that certainly significant in that they're all fulfilled in the Christmas story. But there's also a person who has existed in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit in eternity, and that person, according to the plan and counsel of God, came into this world in order to save us, and we praise the Lord for the message of the gospel. But John is, in a sense, taking us in verses 1 through 13 back, and he's helping us to see the significance of who the Word is. If you want to find out who, in verse 14, the Word is, John is giving some explanation. And he's helping us to see that even before the time of Abraham, the Word existed and was with the Father. And so verse 1 and 2 and down to verse 3, we find the presence, the existence of a personal and divine Word, capital W, with God at the creation of the world. Notice that, and you can even catch what John's trying to do by his first three words there, in the beginning, right? When we see those words, we immediately think, apart from John's gospel, he's quoting Genesis. John intends, of course, for us to understand that there is some connection to Genesis because he does talk about creation. But in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. John here says, in the beginning was the Word. It certainly means that he existed before he came in the flesh, if he was there at the beginning. The beginning, of course, is a reference to the creation of the world, and at the creation, who was there? When God created the world in six days, and at the end of that time, he said, it's all very good. But prior to any of those words of powerful declaration, creation, who was there? 
and from what we understand in terms of the nature of God and what he's revealed, that the triune God has always existed, all three persons of the Trinity. John is drawing attention to the one he calls here in verse 1, the Word, the Logos. And so he preexisted, that is, that he was there in creation. His coming in the flesh was not somehow his coming into existence. No, he existed long before he ever became flesh. He was actually at the beginning when creation happened. And notice, in addition to that first statement, in the beginning was the Word. Not only was he present, preexisting his coming in the flesh, but he also was a person in relationship with God. It says the Word was with God. The implication, of course, is that God too was there. But John is setting forth the concept, the truth, that the Logos, or the Word, was in relationship with God. And the way that he's stating it helps us to see that the Word is somehow distinct from this one that he's calling God. And yet he very quickly follows that with the next statement, which is a declaration of the deity of the Word as he says, the Word was God. So in the beginning was the Word, that means he was there, and the Word was with God, he had a relationship to God, and yet he also says the Word was God. That means the Word is divine. And that's what one person renders the phrase, the Logos was divine. And he's not saying God was the Word. He's not equating those two. There is a thought about God that when we think about the three persons, there is a thought, and it's a heretical thought, that God somehow existed as one person and then another person and then another person. That's a heresy. There's an ancient heretic named Sibelius who believed that, and he described it, I'm quoting here from someone's description, that God was the Father in creation, the Son in redemption, and the Holy Spirit in sanctification. We don't believe that. And part of the reason we don't believe that is in part that second statement there, the Word was with God. There are two personalities that are spoken of there. And that personality who is called the Word also is divine. So there's at least two, based upon the reading of verse 1, we understand there's at least two divine persons. Now, just kept, keep on reading in John, and you see, of course, that the Spirit also is a divine person. Three persons, one God. And we come to understand that John here, from the very beginning, is not, while he's not necessarily teaching the Trinity per se, he's implying the Trinity by talking about these two persons. And the Word, yes, he was with God in the beginning. Verse 2, it says, he was, or this one, was in the beginning with God. Again, there's another emphasis on his presence there, his participation there, and we find out how... Uh, active he was in participation when we read verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. All things came into being through who? Through the Logos which actually helps us to see not only was he with God and not only was God, but he participated actively in the creation of all things. The next verse draws attention to the life source that he has that became life for others. Well, let's just think for a moment about what he's saying there in verse 3. The same person who was made flesh, verse 14, all things came into being through him. All things came into being through the Logos. The Word is the Creator. 
So when it says the word became flesh, that's the creator becoming flesh, entering into this world. Now, he was not alone in creation. We understand the Father and the Son were also there. And just a statement from a confession made in the basis of Scripture, this comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world. And all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. So it's not that the Father wasn't there. It wasn't, it's not that the Spirit wasn't there. It's what John is saying is the Word was there. Actively participating, actively creating. And just think about this person there at creation in terms of the abundance that we see in the universe. The diversity, the variety. We see something of his power. We see something of his imagination. We see something of his wisdom as we see design within creation. That is the word of God. Read it again, verse 3. All things came into being through him. This little child that we see in our minds at Christmas time, laid in a cattle trough. That is the one who made all things. He made the cattle. He made the materials for the manger, whatever that was. All things. When we say all things, we can look around us, but there are many things in this world, many things we can see, and then there's also the invisible things that we can't see that he also made. So the Logos made all things, all things that came into being. Of course, this would accept uh, E-X-C-E-P-T. It doesn't mean that the Father or the Spirit came into being. Of course, they're eternal. And the other persons of the Trinity, he did not create them, but everything that is made came into being. And how does that work? Hebrews 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him in one, Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So this is not excluding the Father, but it is to say that the Word was there, the Son was there. We find John's language in other places applying that term Son to the Word as well. Paul, as he writes in Colossians, says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. There are invisible things. There are invisible persons to us unless God allows them to appear. Like angels. Paul goes on to say, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That means in him, that means the creative plans, design, and the forces, and even the life, as he's about to say, is coming through this person. This is the word. This is the Logos. And there's no exceptions. Look at the rest of verse 3. He says, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Everything that has come into being finds its source in the Logos. There is no alternative universe. There are not things outside of his creation. Of course, God is not created. He's the creator. He's eternal. He always has been. He always will be. But what is being said here is that he is creator and exclusively so. One writer said the world is due to God himself acting through his word. The universe is not eternal, nor is it due to some foolish inferior being. This world is God's world. 
And we could say, this is my father's world. We could also say, this is Christ's world. This is the word's world. He made it. Apart from him, John says, verse 3, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Charles Wesley says, let all that breathe, Jehovah praise. Almighty, all-creating Lord, let earth and heaven his power confess, brought out of nothing by his word. He spake the word, and it was done. The universe, his word obeyed. His word is his eternal son, and Christ the whole creation made. Jesus, the Lord and God most high, maker of all mankind, and me, me thou hast made to glorify, to know and love and live to thee, wherefore to thee my heart I give, for thou thyself didst, dost give the power, and if for thee on earth I live, thee I shall soon in heaven adore. The word made you. And you owe him. By virtue of his creation, he owns you. And I believe Wesley was right in calling, in light of just creation, the creatures to worship and serve the creator. That's why we exist. You do not exist for yourself. You exist for God. From him are all things and for him, and of course, to him. Now, the word, of course, actively participating in creation. He created some things that are inanimate, but in verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So when we think of the word in terms of creation, of course, he made things that are inanimate, but he also made things that are animate and have life. Remember, God breathed into Adam, into his nostrils, the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Where did that life come from? That life came from the word. We find life, of course, in Genesis chapter 1, but we find if we read through John's gospel life of another kind, or at least an exposition of what true life is, it's eternal life through Christ. And of course, life, just life in this world, whether it's an animal or man, everyone is given that life, is sustained by God, sustained by Christ himself, by the Word. But then there's also eternal life. And you read through the Gospel of John, you see many references to eternal life. But this emphasis on light and life is why Wesley also said, light and life to all he bring, risen with healing in his wings. The power to give life, the power to give light, the power to restore life through healing. Life resides in this person who he said himself, he is the life. He came to give life, eternal life. He came that men might have life and have it more abundantly, John 10. Of course, God gave his son that men might have everlasting life through faith in him. Jesus gave his life for the, uh, his flesh for the life of the world, John 6, 51. Uh, those who come to him have life, John 5, 40. He said in John 10, 28, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He said to Martha, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So he has life in himself. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, attention is drawn by those who are reading, studying the Gospel of John uh, to some statements that sometimes seem, especially in light of what I just, the verses I just quoted, what is John saying here when he says the life was the light of men? Is this have something to do with all mankind? Or is he just talking 
and going to specify later that this has to do only with believers. Well, if anyone has any life, the word is the one who gives it. If anyone has any light, whether they respond rightly to the light or not, it is God who gives it through the word, through the gospel. In fact, Jesus, in his teaching, sometimes talked about the light and the failure that's, that, that some uh, may, or the, the mistake that some made of not responding rightly to the light. He talked about himself as the light of the world, but not everybody responds to the light of the world in a way that is believing. For instance, he says in John chapter 12, verse 35, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk, walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, capital L, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And then he says a little bit later in the same chapter, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me, he who sees me, sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So if there's any light that anyone has, true light, it's Christ, it's the word. But obviously we can respond rightly to that or we can reject it. We can turn away from it. And of course people do. J.C. Ryle wrote, he, speaking of Logos, is the eternal fountain from which alone the sons of men have ever derived life. Whatever spiritual life and light Adam and Eve possessed before the fall was from Christ. Whatever deliverance from sin and spiritual death any child of Adam has ever enjoyed since the fall, whatever light of conscience or understanding anyone has obtained, all has flowed from Christ. Then he says, the vast majority of mankind in every age have refused to know him, have forgotten the fall and their own need of a savior. The light has constantly been shining in darkness. But then he says, the most have not comprehended the light. But if any men and women out of the countless millions of mankind have ever had spiritual life and light, they've owed all to Christ. Notice what he says in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overpower it, or the darkness did not comprehend it. Literally, the word there is grasp it. The darkness did not take hold of it. We need to think about this for a moment, in part because John has been talking in terms of imperfect verbs or you can, it's, it's worded in him was life, the life was the light of men, but now he says the light shines and there's a change in tense here to the present tense. And so what he's saying is the light shines, it shines even now. The light is shining. The light hasn't gone out. And certainly it shined brightly when Christ came and as he lived in the flesh, but the light also shines as Christ is alive and his followers continue to preach the message of the gospel and point people to the light that's still shining. But how does the darkness respond to that light? And again, I think here you have to go further into John to fully understand what he's talking about when he says darkness. Darkness is an abstract idea. We all know what darkness is, the absence of light. But John uses darkness to describe the world and the darkness of sin and unbelief. It's expressed in the song, the whole world is lost in the darkness of sin, but the light of the world is Jesus. That darkness of sin and unbelief and its response to the light. Notice verse 5 again at the end of the verse, it says the darkness did not comprehend. Again, the word is grasp. We would say certainly if it's a matter of understanding, God has to give understanding, so comprehend makes sense. If it's the word overpower, we know that light is going to overpower darkness. It always does. But if we just take the word for what it is, the dar darkness did not grasp it. 
then we could be talking about something intentional. Something that is willful. Something that on the part of darkness is a recognition of the light, but an unwillingness to respond to the light. And as you look through this passage and you see the world and its response to the logos or to the light, to the word, how does the world respond to him? For instance, in verse 10, look down at verse 10. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were were his own did not receive him. And you might say, well, they just didn't understand. They were ignorant. We'll come to that verse, but there also could be this sense. The world did not acknowledge him, and the world did not welcome him. And in our sinful hearts, how do we respond to the light? Because of our wickedness, how do we respond to the light rather than gravitating towards it? rather than moving towards the light of truth and holiness and ultimately the Word, how how do we respond to that in our sinfulness? We don't grasp it. We don't take hold of it. Instead, we want to hide in the dark. We don't welcome the light. And it's like what Jesus said in John chapter 3. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Realize here we're talking about abstractions to a certain extent, light, darkness. But don't miss this, that when John is talking about darkness, he is talking about unbelief and sin, and it also is an image that helps us see what we were before we came to know Christ. We were darkness. We were living in that realm. And when the light came, our first response, apart from God's working, was not to gravitate to the light. Instead, it's like somebody turns a bright light on and you just want to, you know, you want to shut your eyes because you've had your, your eyes closed or you've been in the dark and you don't want that. And so you try to get away from that. Well, that's our natural response to the truth. That's our natural response to the light of Christ. Romans 3, no one seeks after God. No one. Now, obviously a heart that is changed where the light of the gospel has shined into someone's heart. Someone has come to know the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and has believed in Jesus Christ. They've welcomed the light because God has given them a knowledge of the light. They've responded by faith in the light. And even then, even after we've come to the light, right, we still struggle because of our sin. But now we would say we welcome, because of what God has done in our hearts, we welcome the light. And now we proclaim the light. We proclaim the truth. We proclaim the word of God. We proclaim Christ. A changed heart, by God's grace, does welcome him. But by nature, the darkness, in the darkness, we would not grasp after that. We would not take hold of that if it wasn't for the grace of God. We've been looking at, in verses 1 through 3, the Logos, his identity as God, his personality certainly in existence with God, in relation to God, his preexistence, his deity, his participation, his active participation in creation, the possession of life within himself, verse 4. And then as, of course, that light is proclaimed, it is the light of men. As he proclaimed it, as we proclaim it, it is light for others. But then the response of darkness to the light. Now, verse 6 gives us as the other Gospels do, a record of what God was doing as he brought the Logos into the world. 
He sent a witness. He sent a forerunner. He sent a voice that was crying out in the wilderness before that was saying, prepare the way of our God. Every single one of the Gospels includes John the Baptist. He doesn't use the word word Baptist here. Later on in the chapter, we find him baptizing. But this is, in verse 6, a reference to that same person. This is not the author of the Gospel, although John the Apostle was certainly a witness. This is John the Baptist, who was sent by God as a divinely appointed witness to the light. Notice that in verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. You want to see the history of that? Look back at Luke 1, but he's just simply identifying John, John the Baptist, who comes divinely commissioned as a witness, verse 7, for the light, to give testimony to the presence of the light, that the light is coming, that the light eventually is here, and John, as attention was drawn to him, but the light was present, he was always deflecting attention away from himself by pointing to the light. I think you could say that just on the basis of reading the first few chapters of John's gospel, because John, as he declared the light and proclaimed the light, proclaimed the Logos, he was actually telling his own disciples to follow this one who is the light. John was not about amassing people to himself. Yes, he, they came to him as he preached, but as he became aware by God's revelation of who the Messiah is, because the Spirit came down and rested upon him, John began, certainly he was talking about Christ before that, but he then saw that this is the one who baptizes in the Spirit, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, follow him. Follow him. If attention came to John, he must increase. I must decrease. John is constantly humbling himself and pointing to the importance of this one who is the light. He also called him the bridegroom, and he just said, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom who rejoices to hear his, the, the bridegroom's voice, but he actually wants to be in the background. He says, I, I, I'm not even worthy to, to un." Uh, latch the the sandals that he has on his feet. I I can't even do that because of how great this person is. Turn over for just a moment to John chapter 3 and verse 27. This comes right after John the Baptist is told that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. Many are coming to him. Verse 27 John responds to that news with these words. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. It's a great thought but just to hear the voice of the bridegroom brings a fullness of joy to John's heart. Would that that would be the case with us. And we can't hear his voice per se. We can see times in the scriptures where his voice and he speaks words, his voice is drawn attention to as it is here. But just to see the words that he said, to understand the truths that he conveyed, does that bring you joy? Is it something to just be able to hear the words of God today and rejoice in knowing that these are God's words? John said, my joy has been made full just to hear the voice. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. 
What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John's preaching the gospel. How many of those statements and phrases give us understanding of who this person is? I'm just going to leave that as a question, but the passage answers it. Go back through and see all that John was saying about Jesus. And what he's saying there and what he's saying in John chapter 1 and other places is his testimony and his witness to the light, to give us an understanding of who the light is. I mean, even, even his statement about the, about the latchet of his sandals, I'm not worthy even to, to, to unloose that. That tells us that John did not even consider himself worthy to be the least servant in connection with this person. Because he came from heaven, and he speaks the words of God. He has the Spirit without measure. He is the coming one who came from heaven. This is no mere teacher. This is no mere good man. This is the Messiah himself. This is God in the flesh. This is the Logos. This is the Word. And John, if you turn back to John chapter 1, he came, and though he had a powerful ministry, he would constantly deflect and draw attention to Christ, to the light. He wasn't trying to take attention away. He was trying to point to the light. And it seems that there may have been those who wanted to follow John, just like in Corinthians. Some of the Corinthians wanted to follow a specific teacher instead of the Lord. John wasn't trying to amass followers for himself. John, the apostle here, says he was not the light. The only thing that he did was to come to testify about the light. So we find that he came from God. He was sent by God. We find his task as a witness. And what is his goal? Look at verse 7, middle of the verse. It says, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. What was John aiming at? What was his purpose in drawing attention to the light? If you had to answer that question, what was the message of John the Baptist, what would you say? You might say, well, it was a baptism of repentance, so repentance. But I think the answer here, according to this verse, is faith. There's really not a contradiction because faith and repentance are two sides, as someone has said, of the same coin. When a person truly believes, they turn from sin. When a person turns from sin, it's because they believe, at least as they genuinely turn from sin. John powerfully called people to turn from their sins, from the least in society to the greatest, from the tax collectors to the Pharisees to the Sadducees, and he's not interested only in a change of action. He's interested in heart obedience, genuine faith, authentic, genuine change from the heart because Certainly in Jesus' day, even Jesus decried the fact that these people who came to him, they honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. And John was trying to bring the two together so that people who were speaking about God and worshiping God, at least in their words, would also worship God and speak about God uh, and fear God from their hearts. That's genuine faith. And what issues out of that is genuine repentance. So John was aiming at faith, and he was aiming, of course, at faith in the light. Later, he says in this chapter, the Lamb. Later in the chapter, Christ is identified as the King of Israel. John is drawing attention to the Messiah, that they would put their faith and trust in the Messiah. 
And I would just ask you today, before we move on to the reception in verses 9 through 13, you've heard the gospel. You know the object of faith. But have you believed it? And has there been a change in your life? Have you turned from your reliance upon your own righteousness and placed your trust in His? Have you? It doesn't matter that you're at church today. It doesn't matter that you've been baptized. It doesn't matter what your profession is. I'm asking what the reality is. Someone who has believed the gospel has truly come to know Christ. Their life has changed. Belief and repentance is a changed life. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's a continued belief and a continued repentance. And that kind of a person, someone who's come to Christ, believed and turned from their sin, just looks different there's something going on there. It's produced by the Spirit of God. There's true life there because God has given life. God has changed that person. And if that's you today, rejoice in it. But if it's not you, and I'm talking about it, and you know, you know you've heard the gospel, but you've never truly believed, I want to call you today to turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ alone and His righteousness. Now, there are responses, quickly, in verses 9 through 13. Responses to the light. Verse 9 says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. This is not talking about universal salvation. Not every person has salvation. I believe what John is talking about is the knowledge that God gives through the light as he came into the world, the knowledge of salvation through faith in him. It doesn't mean people responded to it. In fact, there were those who saw it, and it even says that they believed in him, but they were not openly confessing it. John 12, 42, Nevertheless, many of the rulers, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. For fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So yes, he enlightens every man. When the gospel is preached, when Christ came, they knew, of course, he's the source of life and light and salvation, but that doesn't mean they responded to him. They might have even done something in their heart. They became convinced because of the light that they had of who he was, but they would not confess him because they loved the approval of people more than they loved the approval of God himself. Could there be someone here today who has had that light? They've been enlightened in that sense. You've heard and come to know the truth of the gospel. You may have heard it many times, but you've failed to and you fear to confess it because of others, family, friends, associates. You know, there's coming a day when the opinions of others will be completely unimportant to you, and that's when you stand before Jesus Christ himself, the judgment seat, and mark it down. That's an appointment you will have to keep. That's an appointment you will not miss. You can't say, call in and cancel that. Every person is going to meet that true light and how did, how did the world respond when he came into the world? This is interesting. Verse 10, it says, He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Again, if we go back to verse 5, the darkness did not grasp it. Here we could, talk, we could be talking about ignorance, the ignorance of Christ. But it also could be a failure to acknowledge him for any number of motives. In other words, when it says he was in the world, the world was made through him. Of course, when people first encountered him and didn't know who he was at all, and then the truth was proclaimed, they came to realize who he was, and some believed, like the woman at the well came to believe in the Messiah. But of course, there were people who also came to believe what his claims were or that he called himself the Son of God, and they rejected it. 
They would not have it. They would not acknowledge him as such. And even when the placard is written over the cross, they're trying to say, don't say that he is, say that he said that, because they didn't believe it. They didn't want that proposition, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. They wanted to say, this is what he said, that he's the king of the Jews, because they just can't stomach the truth. They won't take it. And certainly, some of those who did that were, as verse 11 describes, verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. I think in the context here, what, what, do you, what, is, what is his own? When it refers to the logos, the light here, in light of everything that John has taught, when he comes to his own, what is his own? Well, if you're thinking in terms of the Jews, I understand that. Jesus, of course, came. He was born of a virgin, but he's of the line of David, the tribe of Judah. And you might say he came unto his own, and it had to do with the Jews. And I would say, yes, that's true. But if you back out from that and say he's the creator of the world and he made everything, that is also his own. He came in to the world, which was his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. Now, this isn't talking about an absolute where no one at all received him. And we also understand that Jesus, when he came, he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sent his disciples there. So I understand the point that Someone might make, yeah, but, but this is for the Jews. And that is true, that, that for the, in large measure, the Jews did not receive him. But he also came into a world, many of whom did not receive the Creator and the Savior. But, praise the Lord for the word but here, transition to understand that there are some who have received and do receive and will receive. And there's a blessing when you receive this one, the light. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a reception of the light that when you receive the light by faith, and that's what John is talking about, you become a child of God. A child of God. By implication, you weren't a child of God. You're not a child of God apart from that. Of course, the Scripture makes that clear, that everyone born into this world as sinners in Adam, we're really children of the devil. He is our father until we put our trust in Christ. And when we put our trust in Christ, not only do we receive the forgiveness of sins, not only do we receive eternal life, not only do we receive the Holy Spirit, and all the other accompanying blessings of salvation, but we become children of God with all of the promises, with all of the blessings, with all of the rights, with all of the hope of being with God forever. When was the last time you valued the fact that you as a believer are a child of God? I'm a child of the King. I belong to Him. He cares for me. He owns me. He's going to bring me to himself. He delights in my presence, loves to hear my prayers. This is what is true for those who receive him, receive the light. How is that reception made, or how do you, how do you receive? John specifies it. John the apostle, just like John the Baptist, is driving at faith. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, even to those who believe in his name. So reception of the light 
is accompanied, of course, by the blessing of becoming a child of God, but reception of the light requires faith in his name. You must believe in him. You must believe in his promises. You put your trust in him and rest on his word, specifically the gospel. And that is accompanied, of course, by repentance. Can I ask the question today of you, do you have faith in God? Are you believing in God's words? Have you received the light and become a child of God? And I want to invite you today, if you have not put your trust in Christ, come to Christ. Today could be the day of your salvation. Today you could come out of darkness and into the light. You could receive the light and become a child of God if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You could have forgiveness of sins. You could have the spirit within all the blessings of salvation. I could be talking to someone today, and that's what you need to do. You're here, you're listening to the Word of God, but the most important thing you could do today or the rest of your life is that. Come to Christ. Don't turn away from Him. Believe in Him. And if you do, the final point, and just briefly, that John makes in verse 13 is that when that happens, that's a work of God. That's the new birth. That's something that God does for a person when he brings them out of darkness and into light. They are, in John's words, Jesus' words, they are born again. And there's a negation here. It's not by blood that this happens. It's not the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. Now, while we would say it's right to, to, to preach to those who do not believe and call them to repentance, call them to believe, of course, that necessitates a choice. But when that choice is made, we would say that's the work of God, to give them understanding, to give them faith, to, to come to Christ. That doesn't mean we stop preaching believe as a command. It doesn't mean we stop preaching repent as a command. As the scripture tells us to preach those things. But I think as we look at when God saves a sinner by his grace, he has done it. That those last three words, but of God, are important. J.C. Ryle said believers did not become what they are by blood, that is, by descent from Abraham or blood connection with godly people. Grace does not descend from parent to child. Nor yet did believers become what they are by the will of the flesh, that is, by the efforts and exertions of their own natural hearts. Nature can never change itself. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Nor yet did believers become what they are by the will of man, that is, by the acts and deeds of others. Neither ordained ministers nor anyone else can confer grace upon another. Man cannot regenerate hearts. We can't do that. Only God can do that. And he says, believers become what they are solely and entirely by the grace of God. It is to God's free grace, preventing, calling, converting, renewing, and sanctifying that they owe their new birth. They are born of God. Or, he says, as the third chapter says more distinctly, born of the Spirit. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So have you been born again? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you renounced your own righteousness and are trusting in Christ alone? Have you come practically uh, to know practically the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Does the Holy Spirit live within? Have you taken up your cross and are you following Christ? You can answer yes to those questions. Maybe you'd say, well, I don't know that I do all those things perfectly. But the point is that, have you done that? Have you come to Christ? Have you turned from reliance on self and put your faith in Him? Are you following Him? Or another question could be, are you living in worldly-mindedness for your own lusts and pleasures? not concerned for what God's purpose is or his will for your life. How could such a person claim to know Christ and live for themselves? 
No evidence of the Holy Spirit within, only living for their own desires. Maybe pleasing people, but certainly not God, and oftentimes really just pleasing themselves. They need to be born again. Someone asked George Whitfield why he constantly preached on the new birth. And his answer was, because you must be born again. You must be. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for sending your light into the world. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into the world. As we think about Christmas, the Word made flesh, dwelling among us, Emmanuel, we pray that you'd give us joy in believing. But I pray even today, if there's someone who needs to come to Christ, they might have celebrated many Christmases, but they've never truly come to Christ. Draw them, Lord, open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light. We pray that even today would be the day of their salvation, that they would come to you by faith. And for us who know you, Lord, give us joy and rejoicing and a desire to tell others the good news. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.